Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk private aviation, only something I can aspire to. Uh, <laughs> I'm in the TSA lines like the rest of you. Um, Kenny Dichter, founder and CEO of Wheels Up. They're based in uh, New York City. They went public today via a SPAC. I'm looking at that stock. It's got a great ticker symbol, up, UP, and the stock is uh, trading up about 8.9% in early in, in trading this morning. Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations again on your listing. Talk to us about the private aviation business. How has it changed over the years, and particularly in the last 18 months? Uh, give us a sense of that business. Well, I would say, like our ticker symbol, it's up. And uh, I would say we're in the business of democratizing private aviation. So while I think that you're going to continue to travel commercially with you and your family, I think there will be parts, uh, places and times where we can actually swing an airplane for a guy like you. So again, we're bringing this to more people, bigger addressable market, we're Uberizing the space, we're Airbnbizing the space, and just making this more accessible to more people. Part of that is you talk about a strategic partnership with Delta Airlines. What can members then benefit from the Delta Airlines strategic partnership? Well, the great news about the Delta partnership, and we were able to do that deal off market with Ed Bastian 18 months ago. And by the way, in that deal, Ed contributed his private jet business, and they became our largest shareholder. Um, so the couple of things about the Delta deal. One is it made Delta easily and seamlessly accessible to our client base, which, by the way, travels commercially on long haul, most of our clients, most of the time. So uh, you can put $100,000 down on wheels up, and you can use that capital uh, to fly Delta. Conversely, Delta's first class, business class, and Bob Summers and their business customers over at Delta now have access to last mile. So if you're a, a business and you're traveling with a couple of people from LAX to JFK, you can jump on your Porsche, which again is a partnership that we just announced that will take you uh, wing to wing uh, to the private uh, terminal and will fly to your, your last mile destination, whether that's Schenectady, New York, or whether that's you know Vermont or a tough to get to place in Rhode Island. Uh, that's, that's really the magic of the Delta deal. Hey, can you tell us about uh, the typical Wheels Up customer? Give us a profile. The profile is anybody that's worked very hard. I like to say that we appeal to the working wealthy, top one, two, three percent, which, by the way, could be 10, 15 or 20 million uh, people deep. Uh, any business that's doing 10 to 20 million dollars in annual revenue, uh, they need to. It's an essential uh, for them to have a Wheels Up membership and have access to our fleet of thousands of airplanes. And, uh, you know, we did this back merger with Robbie Tochran and Scott Denke and his crew over at El Cataton. Ravi had 20 years experience with LVMH, so luxury brand, lifestyle uh, person. But more important, he was based in Asia, uh, chairman of LVMH mm -hmm. Asia. And Scott, you know, El, El Cataton, uh, the finest uh, private equity firm on a global basis uh, out there. So we picked the per perfect partner in the SPAC. And then we got to, with our cap table, we had zero fidelity Franklin Templeton. We got to choose our equity partners here almost by appointment. We did a Zoom roadshow in late January. We ended up seeing 35 companies, 27, them, 27 of them invested, including folks like Third Point, Henry Ellenbogen and his crew at Durable Capital, uh, longtime supporters, and uh, some other great 
uh, equity firms that are in this for the long haul with us. What does the industry look like in a post-COVID world where I might actually finally be comfortable having someone sit next to me in that middle seat? Well, I think that, that, that first off, I think that the commercial airlines, Ed was on and had great earnings uh, this quarter. I think that, look, you're going to see a roaring 20s trade. People, humans want to travel. So I think that the good news is uh, the high tide, as Warren Buffett said, my old boss, lifts all boats. I think that our industry, the hospitality industry, I can't wait till the cruise industry gets back to where it was. I think that, you know, people post-COVID, I think, are going to value experience more than they value what they have. So I think we're in the experience economy. I think that's, it's, it, it's a, a very hot space, and I think it's going to be there for a long time. Paul, we People were just, miss traveling. You People know, miss traveling. Yep. And, Paul, we were just joking. We'd be willing to sell our house. I'd, I'd drive a Honda just for a chance <laughs> to get on that private jet. Exactly right. Exactly. Real quick, um, Kenny, just give a sense of the competitive landscape for you, 30 seconds. Yeah, I would say, look, the only thing standing between wheels up and greatness is wheels up. I think that we're in a very unique space. Again, we're looking to Uberize and airbnb eyes the space where others uh, that we compete with, the traditional legacy competitors, are in the ownership space, which, again, you know, does Uber compete with Hertz? I'd rather be Uber. And that's really where wheels up this position. Fascinating. All right, that's a really cool uh, analogy there. Kenny Dichter, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I know you guys are having a busy day today with your listing. Kenny Dichter, founder and CEO of Wheels Up. It's a fascinating uh, part of the travel market that's, uh, again, a la similar to an Uber, uh, an Airbnb. Um, and so the question is, you know, how broad can that market be? But um, as uh, Kenny was just mentioning, you know, it feels like people are just yearning for those experiences in a post-pandemic world as opposed to maybe, you know, assets. They're looking more for experiences. And that would play certainly into Wheels Up. Let's talk jobs right now. You know, we spend every Thursday talking about looking at the jobless claims and once a month talking at, uh, you know, just the unemployment in general. And what we've seen is generally a pretty solid improvement coming off those just dramatic job losses of 2020 when the pandemic really hit. But what we've also seen is that women have been and continue to be disproportionately hit by uh, the labor market and the challenges in the labor market. Let's get the latest with Neela Richardson, chief economist for ADP, co-head of the ADP Research Institute. And she was also a senior economist at Bloomberg. Neela, thanks so much for joining us here. Help us think about or frame out for us what happened to women in the labor force during the pandemic and now during the recovery. Well, first of all, it's fantastic to join you on uh, the jobs topic because it's so important right now. But what we've seen with women uh, during the pandemic is this conflation of work and home, and that's caused many women to exit the workforce. So this has been widely reported. Going into the pandemic, women's labor market participation was at an eight-year high of 57, upwards of 57%. It dropped uh, like like a stone to 54%. Is still starting to recover. It's reached 56%, but it's not quite there. And that's just women getting in, getting in the door of the workplace, the virtual door as it may be. So we wanted to look at the actual experience of the women who stayed in the workforce. We wanted to look at this kind of mass exit due to health concerns and layoffs and conflate that with what we know is gender pay gaps in the workplace. Uh, previous work Uh, research had told us that women made about 80% of what men made uh, overall across industries. We saw that that pay gap narrowed to 82% 
but it's mostly because low-pay women were forced to leave or dropped out of the workforce. These are not real wage gains. Nella, what is the prescription then to fix this? Is it having a workforce and companies and employers that indeed are more flexible with the return to office? I think that's a good start, Taylor. I mean, if you look at women in the workplace, this is you know, it's not like we were in a, a place of rainbows and puppies before the pandemic, but things have, have definitely accelerated in terms of challenges after the pandemic. One of those barriers has been full-time, full-capacity employment. And so the concern is, as companies make this transition, some of them, from a completely remote environment to a virtual or a in office environment, women will be particularly affected, even if they have a choice, because our survey evidence uh, shows that women often feel uncomfortable taking advantage of remote opportunities, even if they have them. And so there's still this issue of companies being very responsive to women right now, especially considering the pay gaps. Nilla, I mean, one of the big issues, obviously, is the women in, in, in home health care and um, we're hearing a lot of good rhetoric out of companies about really being sensitive to that. Are you seeing any concrete examples that might give you hope that, in fact, corporate America is um, you know, becoming more sensitive to these issues as they try to attract and retain uh, women? You know, that, that is the silver lining uh, of this whole experience about women in the workplace during a very challenging year. Companies in corporate America are paying more attention to worker health in general more than ever before, but also the soft infrastructure that women need to actually get to work and be productive, whether that's childcare or safe public transportation. So you're seeing companies be, one, more flexible in their work-from-home processes, but also having an ear to the other things in work life that are meaningful in terms of production for women especially. You know, Nella, we only have about 30 seconds left. We're not just hearing this from companies. We're hearing it from Jay Powell himself saying that despite substantial improvements for racial and ethnic groups, the hardest hit groups still have the most ground left to gain. Is the Federal Reserve doing the right thing by focusing on this issue and, and adjusting monetary policy appropriately? Yes, uh, this is these. These issues are not new. These historical pay gaps are not new. And I think the Fed has been ahead of the curve in recognizing that through monetary policy, they can lift all boats and those boats that are that are lagging behind uh, the rest of the economy in terms of the recovery because they've been the hardest hit by the pandemic, but the most challenged going into that pandemic. So that policy directed to hard hit groups makes sense if you want a full labor market recovery where you have the most participation across different right. demographics, including women. Neela, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts and insights. A very important topic. Neela Richardson, Chief Economist for ADP, co-head of the ADP Research Institute. All right, let's talk ransomware. Think Colonial Pipeline, JBS Meat Supplier. I mean, the list uh, is getting longer as we speak. It's becoming a big issue. Companies and individuals have to protect themselves. Uh, to figure out how we do that, let's welcome Jason Crabtree. He's co-founder and CEO of Complex. That's spelled with a Q, and he's also a former special advisor to commanding general of the U.S. Army Cyber Command. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, give us a sense of how big 
And how concerned should we be about ransomware and I guess just cybersecurity in general? How do you guys think about it? Sure. Well, ransomware is just frankly continuing to gain steam as we see organizations that are far too vulnerable being taken advantage of by really sophisticated and sizable transnational criminal organizations that have created a really great affiliate network model. They have an awesome business model, and they've been able to reap in you know, tens of millions of dollars of fees this year alone by exploiting and then actually ransoming and effectively holding hostage a bunch of companies and governments all over the world. Jason, we should note that you are the real deal. As a graduate of West Point, you're a licensed professional engineer looking at the power grid, the broader energy system. Um, so you're the perfect person to ask sort of big picture. Am I making out to be too big of a deal by saying that ransomware and cybersecurity is effectively the new way in which some of these state-sponsored countries are waging war on us? And, and, and how should our companies be forced to respond, given that this seems to be the new frontier? Well, I think there's a couple of aspects in this, the first of which is that, you know, criminals go where the money is, right? And they've realized that it's quite efficient and effective to go ahead and either take over companies like Kaseya, right? So a U.S. company based in Miami, a critical software provider, compromised their customers using vulnerabilities in their software, just like the Microsoft software vulnerabilities, use that to take over their networks and then hold all their customers hostage. So you saw trains in Sweden, pharmacies in Sweden, the largest grocer in Sweden co-op, not able to operate for days as a result of a Miami-based software you know, vulnerability here at home. So this is, this is a great way to sit you know, uh, anywhere in the world and get paid. I think the challenge for us as a society is our companies and our country are very digitally dependent. Risk is a consequence of dependence. So we've got to do two things. We have to increase cost and consequence for criminal organizations and pursue them around the world. And we also have to acknowledge that we are not defending our networks adequately and that many of these breaches, including things like JBS and Colonial, were sort of predictable based on how sort of shoddy a lot of the external security posture and other capabilities were. And that's not victim blaming. It's the reality of underinvesting in security and having very vulnerable assets connected to the Internet. You look like a target. You're going to be one. Jason, I'm not sure if this is coincidence or not, but the rise of cryptocurrency seems to have mirrored somewhat the rise of these ransomware attacks. Talk to us about the role that cryptocurrencies play, play in this whole situation. Well, certainly people like Putin have strongly encouraged uh, alternatives to international monetary transfer, right? So things like SWIFT that are actually much more both monitored and secure. So, you know, non-fungible tokens, cryptocurrencies are certainly a part of the story. But fundamentally, ransomware has been going on before crypto was mainstream in this context, and, and frankly, they'll continue afterwards. But it's, it's a contributing factor, but it's not the cause of the, the rampant vulnerability or the tremendous leverage you can get over a company when you shut down its operations. It's not just companies. Remember, you know, the city of Atlanta, right, tens of millions of dollars in recovery costs, school districts in Baltimore. I mean, this is something that's affecting, you know, state municipal organizations just like it's affecting big businesses. I am curious what types of companies are coming to you and saying that they are in most uh, need for your services. Yeah, so our business services some of the most prestigious banks, technology companies around the world. Um, so we work, you know, 
in dozens of countries with very, very large organizations where we, you know, many of our clients have tens of thousands of employees uh, or hundreds of thousands in some cases. So we really help them make sure that the catastrophic breach risks aren't there. We're a bit of an airbag in the car crash, right? We help you walk away. Um, I think one of the challenges for people, and you're seeing this actually this week with another deadly vulnerability in Microsoft software uh, related to print spoolers, which is very geeky, but fundamentally it allows people to take over the identity infrastructure. And we saw CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency here in the United States, uh, just issue a really urgent alert yesterday because people were taking over identity infrastructure. Remember, that's exactly what Russia did in the midst of the solar wind attack to take over major important organizations like Department of Justice, Department of Treasury. Uh, Jason, just about 30 seconds. How much of this ransomware and cyber issues, cyber crime is state-sponsored, do you think, versus just some guy in a garage? Well, so the reality is these are sophisticated criminal organizations. And remember, most of them do operate out of places uh, that are strongly influenced or controlled by Putin, Iran, North Korea. So it's certainly been actively tolerated or known about and I think been quite useful to undermine the West. But we've seen less evidence or no evidence in some cases of overt sponsorship. But remember, these folks benefit from it tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jason Crabtree, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really fascinating discussion. Jason Crabtree, he's a co-founder and CEO of Complex, former special advisor to the commanding general of the U.S. Army Cyber Command. So he certainly knows what he's talking about. And again, as you know, we were talking about it seems like this is an issue. Cybersecurity broadly defined, as Taylor's mentioning, is, is, is a big issue. It's, uh, it seems like it's in its early innings, and it's something that corporate America and individuals need to pay more attention to. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Taylor, you know it's a busy bank earnings day when Shanali Basak, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News, literally is running from the TV <laughs> studio to our radio studio because she has so many different obligations to do. She is running around for us covering not only the great M Live, T Live blog that we yep. have on the Bloomberg terminal, but joining us for radio and TV. What a <laughs> slew of earnings. And yep. you know this from your days, Paul, of uh, just what crazy days these are, listening to both the analysts and the media call yep. and of course the earnings report. And I just think it's so silly for these big, big banks all to report on one day. It's just ridiculous. Spread it out a little bit. But anyway, Shanali, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, we had Bank of America. Citigroup, Wells Fargo, when I think of these institutions as opposed to the Goldman's and J.P. Morgan's and Morgan Stanley's, I think of corporate banking, consumer banking, making loans, net interest margin, and I think one of the takeaways was the loan growth really isn't there, is it? You know, it's so funny because on these conference calls this morning, Bank of America with journalists and analysts, same with Citigroup, they're trying to convince people that this loan growth will come back, that it will be there. But you can see from the investor reaction that they'll believe it when they'll see it, right? That they're just not buying this yet. How much of this can be one-offs given 2020? Everyone was really working on sort of wrapping up our balance sheets, right? Making sure that if you were laid off or what you do with the stimulus checks was paying off some of your debt. Is there appetite for people to want to take on new loans? It's so fascinating because from this, you're seeing wealthier individuals expand their loan on average with the biggest banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, sometimes at very fast paces, will be very interesting, by the way, to see what that looks like at Morgan Stanley tomorrow, which really excels in this space. But the average consumer is not borrowing. So you've got to wonder why there's such a divergence for the wealthiest of America to lever up the way they are. And then where are they deploying those funds, right? Investments and whatnot. 
Another interesting thing that I can't really get over because it matters so much to markets is Bank of America said that they are sitting on so much dry powder that they are deploying this into securities. Mm. So don't worry so much about the loans. They're, they're putting it to make markets. They also said we're not a hedge fund. So, mm-hmm. you know, clearly there is a limit to how much risk they'll take on. I've been watching this over at JP Morgan as well. Their value at risk has dropped significantly. However, again, this dry powder is so interesting at a time where global banking is in an upheaval. It's in a total shakeup. And the American banks and frankly, Citi and Bank of America, which have less share than their bigger three peers, has room to take some of that share in markets. How about the credit quality discussion? What are the banks saying uh, as to the quality of their loan portfolio? I mean, again, we've come through this once in a lifetime pandemic and economic disruption, but it seems like, you know, individuals and corporations are kind of doing okay. I can't get over what it must be like to be a banker right now and not get the love from investors when the consumer is in such apparently decent shape. They're paying down their balances, which is why loans are pretty flat everywhere. I got to say the one place that I'm concerned about is homes. Uh, That is where they're seeing lower balances at a lot of these banks. And that wasn't the case, as we know, before. So what are people actually borrowing for? That's not clear to me. They're spending more. They're just not borrowing more. So much of this can be, I think about Wells Fargo. What do you think of home loans, auto loans, you name it. We're going to be speaking with the Wells Fargo CFO, Mike Santo Massimo, uh, just after the closing bell. If you had one question you'd want to ask him, what would it be? Oh, boy. How much is the asset cap by the numbers yeah. impacting them still, right? How much what of it is, is what is, can you define what the asset cap is? It is basically the Federal Reserve saying that you can't uh, get your assets over a certain amount. Okay. You cannot be lending. Paul, you're in the timeout box. Yeah. I am. <laughs> I mean. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it is a never. I mean, it is really an unprecedented type of punishment that spooked all of Wall Street when it happened, right? Uh, banks are afraid to behave badly. <laughs> and Wells Fargo to- are they the only big bank that has a asset cap? Correct. Okay. And remember, this is still relatively relatively early days for Charlie Scharf, the new CEO, who's also tra- seeking to keep a lid on costs. The bank is becoming more efficient. They and Bank of America this morning said headcount has dropped by thousands in the last quarter alone. Is that intentional? I think there are two things. I think part of it is intentional. Bank of America talked about that shift to digital in that retail business, but also they're paying people more. So wages are going up. Mm-hmm. So headcount must go down if you're controlling costs. So I'm just looking at the stock prices, you know, Wells Fargo up, um, I guess, uh, 43% year to date, looking at some of those other kind of, you know, uh, commercial uh, banks out there. That's a pretty good performance here. So it looks like the streets giving this new management team or just, uh, I guess, and this turnaround plan some credit. Yeah. And, you know, similarly at Citigroup, this is Jane Frazier's first full quarter as CEO. Uh, We saw the stock up in the morning and now it's moderated a bit like it's ending flat. They're cheaper than all the other banks. You've got to wonder whether Wall Street will give her the same kind of grace period that they've given Charlie Scharf. And she, to her credit, have been one of the few that have embraced the more flexible lifestyle. I'm going to be that millennial. (laughs) Brings that up and her being a woman, really understanding the need, particularly for women, though everyone across the board feeling this, the need for flexibility. Where are we and who is doing what? It's so funny because you and I talked about this earlier this week that one of Goldman's top investment bankers, they had had more than 30% of the market share of M&A and so did JP Morgan. 
Goldman's told me that, you know, part of this is coming back to work and being there for clients. That absolutely helps market share. But for Citigroup, what their plan here is uh, to retain and attract, most importantly, talent. And Paul, you and I have talked about that so much. This game of musical chairs on Wall Street must be one of the hottest we've seen in years. One bank president told me that every day, right, we've talked about this every day, he's coming in and a new banker is either threatening to leave or asking for new terms of their employment there. And it is just a hot market for jobs. What's the, um, it's it's interesting, you know, we're going to hear from the European banks, uh, I guess, later. Um, Is the theme that U.S. banks are, in fact, taking global market share? Certainly, because you see these banks eyeing that weakness over there in Europe because they've not only have they had those extra regulatory constraints since the last financial crisis, they have also had even more so of a regulatory constraint since this COVID crisis. So, you know, you can bet your dollar that Goldman and JP Morgan are ready to take that share in Europe and in the U.S. when it comes to those clients. Interesting. I'm be interested to hear from the Deutsche Banks of the world and the, and, and the Barclays mm. and things like that to see how they're performing vis-a-vis the U.S. peers. Shanali Basic, thank you so much. Thank you so for rushing over from TV to radio. We appreciate your efforts. Shanali Basic, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our beautiful Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. So, again, uh, Taylor got Morgan Stanley uh, tomorrow. Uh, pretty high bar for some of the some of the performances there. Yeah, at least when it comes to M&A and investment banking. Reminder, we bring Moynihan at 3.30, followed by Wells yep. Fargo CFO just after the closing bell today. Oh, awesome. So you guys have got the lineup. Got it all covered from the bank's perspective. And, uh, you know, we will certainly cover the remainder of these bank earnings as we continue this earnings season. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.